Anantakoti Vaishnavrinda ki jai. Namacharya Shilharidas Thakur ki jai. Prem Shikaho Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Adoita Gadadhar Shri Vasadigora Bhaktarinda ki jai. Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gogopina Shaimakunda Radha Kunda Giri Govardhana ki jai. Vrindavan Dhamma ki jai, Mathura Dhamma ki jai, Navadvip Mayapur Dhamma ki jai, Jagannath Puri Dhamma ki jai, Ganga Maya Devi ki jai, Bhakti Devi ki jai, Tulsi Maharani ki jai, Samaveta Bhaktarinda ki jai, Gaur Premanande. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Stai Vudalaya Sri Mati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Dinamane Namaste Sarasvati Deve Gauravani Pacharane Nirvasesa Sanyavati Paskachade Satarane Vandeham Sri Guru Sri Yuta Padakamalam Sri Gurun Vaishnavam Sri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raghunatham Bitam Samsajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Bitamscha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya It's October 17th, 2013 in Hilo, Hawaii <coughs> Class over Skype Reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 8, Prayers by King Kunti and Parikit Saved, Text 49, Baladvija Surin Mitra. Pitrir Bartrir Guru Druha Name Sanirayan Moksho Yapi Varsha Yuta Yutai Bala Boys Dwija the twice born Sturit well wishers Mitra friends Pitra parents Bratre brothers Guru Preceptors Druha One who has killed Na 
never may my siat there shall be nirayat from hell moksha liberation he certainly api although varsha years ayuta millions ayutai being added translation in purport by shila prabhupad i have killed many boys brahmanas well-wishers friends parents preceptors and brothers i will not be relieved from the hell that awaits me for all these sins though i live there for millions of years purport whenever there is a war there is certainly a massacre of many innocent living beings such as boys brahmanas and women whose killing is considered to be the greatest of sins they are all innocent creatures and in all circumstances killing of them is forbidden in the scriptures maharaj yudhisthira was aware of these mass killings similarly there were friends parents and preceptors also on both sides and all of them were killed it was simply horrible for him to think of such killing and therefore he was thinking of residing in hell for millions and billions of years baladvija suran mitra pitrir bratr guru durha namesyan nirayan moksho yapi varsha yuta yutai i have killed many boys brahmanas well-wishers friends parents preceptors and brothers i will not be relieved from the hell that awaits me for all these sins although i live there for millions of years here maharaj yudhisthira again lamenting like a, an illusion materially conditioned person as was explained in the previous verses is saying that he is personally responsible for sins which he considers unforgivable unrepentable not able to be dissolved by penance that his punishment should go on and on and on and on and even then he would never be punished enough so sometimes we do this to ourselves in fact conditioned souls in general do this to ourselves we consider that we have performed unforgivable unforgivable unpardonable sins and we condemn ourselves to hellish punishments for millions and millions and millions of years the other day i was was cooking dinner i asked one of my grandsons to if he could help me i was making stuffed peppers so he said well i don't know how to do it i said well can you just wash the peppers and and core them and and cut them and he said oh i've cut peppers before i've cut them for salad i said yeah okay but you don't want to cut them for salad you just want to cut them in half so he took the he he was helping out with various things and and he was saying oh did i do this right i said no that's okay that's okay then he took 
wanted the peppers, he cut it in half, and then he started cutting the half into smaller strips as if he was cutting for salad because that's what he's accustomed to do. And I said, oh, now you've made a serious mistake. I said, because since you've cut them like this, I don't know how I'm going to make the preparation that I have planned. Maybe I'll have to plan another preparation. And then I thought for a minute. I said, okay, well, we have some young children in the house. They're only going to eat little pieces anyway. I, I could manage to just sort of put the stuffing on top of these little strips. I said, but please just cut them in half from now on. So then when we were sitting down and taking prasadam, I said to the family, so I, I want to thank Vikram for helping with, with dinner tonight. And he said, oh, I didn't help. He said, I made a terrible, terrible mistake that ruined the whole dinner. And I said, well, well no, I was able to make the stuffed peppers. I said, you were helping me for half an hour. I said, you know, it, it ended up, we, we, we dealt with it. We fixed it. No, I've made it. He kept saying it over and over again. I've made a terrible mistake. I have ruined everything. And basically, no matter what anybody said, he was convinced that what he had done was, was horrible. And so we, we do this kind of thing. You know, we wallow in, in guilt. We, we wallow in shame. We wallow in guilt. And we decide that what we've done is horrendous beyond horrendous. And especially, not only horrendous beyond horrendous, but the real point that strikes me here is that Yudhisthira thinks that his sins are not forgivable. He, there's, that there's no penance, there's no rectification, there, there's no austerity, there's nothing he can do. I, I cannot get. He says, never. Right? Na me syan nirayan moksha. I will never get liberation from hell. He says, even if I'm there for millions of years and you add more millions of years onto it. Millions and millions and millions. I'll never. There, there is no, there's nothing that I can do that will make up for this. I simply have to suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer. And that's all. Now, of course, we can gain from this verse, which Srila Prabhupada talks about in his lectures, how respectful and responsible people were in a Vedic society. So here, Mars Yudhisthira is the world emperor. You might think that Vedic society means that everybody has to respect him and think about not offending him. But he's also thinking of how to respect and protect those who are his subordinates, even boys, Bala, the Brahmins, the friends, parents, brothers. I mean, some are his uh, social superiors, like parents and, and gurus. <coughs> some are equals, uh, like friends well-wishers. Some may be, you know, brothers depending on age. Boys are definitely subordinates. Prabhupada speaks at great length in commenting on this, in, in speaking his lectures on this verse about the care of children, about how Vedic society really took proper care of the children and trained them not only materially but also spiritually. Uh, this is the responsibility of the government. 
and that the king was had this level of responsibility. And of course, nowadays, uh, this is still true to some extent. Certainly, most of the governments of the world, or many of the governments of the world, have leaders who feel some degree of responsibility for the children and the and the teachers, etc., in their country. I mean, here in America, we have a constitution and we have laws that protect children. We require that all children get an education. There's a lot of time and energy and money put into that. Dwija, even there's a lot of respect for religious people. In America, again, there's a constitution that says the government cannot interfere with religion. It can neither establish a religion and force everyone to follow it, nor can it prohibit a religion. And religious organizations are exempt from paying tax, just like in a Vedic society, Brahmins did not have to pay tax. In fact, the government cannot even demand to see the financial accounts of a religion. I mean, unless there's some clear indication of, of crime. The government cannot decide what sort of religious practices are followed and so forth, which is, is very much in line with the Vedic ideal. And the, the government in, in many countries gives provision for parents, not so much in America, but in most countries, parents are given some money to help take care of their children just because they have children. <coughs> also guru, teachers. So again, in most countries of the world, teachers are given money by the government. There's government-funded schools where the teachers are paid with tax money. Of course, they're paid a salary. But in Vedic times, the government also gave charity to the teachers from the money it collected in taxes. It made sure that the gurus were provided for. So it made sure the children were educated. It made sure the teachers were provided for. It made sure the Brahmins were protected and could speak the truth. And there was a general idea of gratefulness and protection for friends and well-wishers. Prabhupada also mentions in the purport women um, but that's uh, also discussed in, in another verse specifically, I believe. Yes, that's discussed in text 51, so I'm not going to deal specifically with women. So this, this sin that Maharaj Yudhisthira feels is unpardonable, unforgivable, is that rather than protecting these persons whom he's supposed to give the utmost respect to and protect to on every level, on both material and spiritual level, that instead they've been killed, which is, one could argue, the worst or, or close to the worst. There are things worse than killing, but one of the worst opposites of respect and protection. And certainly there are things worse than death. Even Krishna says dishonor is worse than death. But if you're supposed to protect someone and take care of them, and instead you kill them, now this is one of our objections to meat eating. You have this, you have this animal who's under your protection, who's under your care. You feed it, you house it. You know, before the days of the big agribusiness, the animals would be part of a family farm, and then you kill it. There's actually a specific hell mentioned in the fifth canto for someone who protects animals, gives them shelter, and then kills them. So this is horrible. Or abortion. You know, the womb is supposed to be a place where the living entity can develop its new body safely. 
while developing its new body, it's, it's very vulnerable. The parts of the body are being formed. And therefore, the child is in a very, very vulnerable position. So it has to be protected. And the idea is it's protected physically by the womb, and its idea is it's protected by a, a mother. You know, we think of mother. We think of not just somebody who has the baby in her body and gives birth to it, but somebody who's concerned for the, the love and the protection of the child. And instead, after uh, calling the child to the womb, then the mother kills it. Please come to my my house. I invite some guests to your house, and then you kill them. You could say, "Well, what about rape?" Or, uh, but even the uninvited guest is supposed to be treated like God. If some guest comes to your house, even you haven't invited them. In fact, more so, the uninvited guest in every culture is supposed to be treated like God. Some uninvited guest comes, and you kill them. So this is our, our objections to modern society, that those who should be protected, those who should be cared for, are being killed. I, Prabhupada, I just, just because Prabhupada mentions women here in the, in the purport, is that, you know, Prabhupada talks about how in, in, in India the women are so respected, but that's not true anymore. That's not true anymore. That women are often disrespected more in India than they are in the Western countries that India is trying to emulate. So this this is what Maharaj Yudhisthira considers an unforgivable sin. That there's no way to compensate for uh, allowing for, directly killing, or facilitating the killing of persons whom the government is meant to protect. So we can, we can see here what in the mind of a righteous Vedic king constitutes an unforgivable sin. You harm those whom you're supposed to protect. You do the opposite of your duty. You do the opposite of your responsibility. Of course, that isn't actually what happened here. Because why did Krishna want this battle of Kurukshetra? Why was it fought? It was fought to take care of the citizens. It was fought because Duryodhana and company, although from a, a very superficial material platform, he was factually taking good care of the citizens. In fact, I believe it's at the end of this very chapter where Srila Prabhupada says that in two purports. But he wasn't taking care of them spiritually. He wasn't connecting them with Krishna, which is the whole purpose of the creation. The purpose of the creation is not only to facilitate people's eating, sleeping, mating, and defending, and to fulfill people's material desires. The purpose of the creation is also to give people liberation, to, get, to bring people closer to Krishna. And Duryodhana wasn't capable of doing that because he himself was a demon. He was opposed to God. You, know, you can be a very, uh, you know, first-class demon. I mean, even he wasn't really, because Duryodhana arranged for the murder of his cousins, just to secure his own position. So we can't even say that from a moral point of view, he was a very good person. Anyway, even if he made sure that the citizens had enough food and water and education and so forth and so on, he wasn't taking care of their ultimate need for spirituality. And just like, you know, Prabhupada will give the example, if you have all facility for sense enjoyment, but you don't have enough food, what is the use? You know, 
if you're starving, how can you enjoy you beautiful clothes and a wonderful sexual partner and fame and prestige if you're starving? You know, similarly, if you had a, you know, you had a, a wonderful, tasty banquet with the company of good friends, and but there was no air to breathe, there was no, how, what is the use? So without providing the citizens with spirituality, Duryodhana was causing them great harm. And therefore, to save the world, the battle had to be fought so that righteous persons could rule the world. It's explained very clearly in the Mahabharata that demons had taken the form of Kshatriyas and even Brahmanas in order to take over the earth planet for their own purposes as an outpost to gradually take over the universe. And the earth had to be restored. These, these demons had to be killed. Even now, Prabhupada says, he says in the age of Kali that the demons sometimes take birth in the family of Brahmanas so they do this, of course, to give them a chance for elevation, but they do this also because of their desire to cause trouble. In any case, Krishna wanted the balance restored, and he wanted people to be brought towards spirituality, and he wanted the citizens of the world to be protected. And in the course of doing that, you know, it's not that they want to do it by war. So many peaceful means of doing that were tried, dividing the kingdom, into Indraprastha and Hastinapur, asking even just for five villages, as so many peaceful means were employed. And it was Duryodhana and company who insisted on war. They said, we will not give up our position without a, a fight. So how was Maharaj Yudhisthira responsible for the death of, of innocent persons? Innocent persons means that although the, these all you're talking about soldiers, He's not talking about innocent persons like in the modern society where you just kind of bomb cities. That they hadn't committed any crime. Abhimanyu hadn't committed a crime, etc. So therefore, really, this was meant to protect the citizens. And the unfortunate situation is that sometimes there may be killing of innocent citizens in order to protect the citizens as a whole. We all recognize this. We all recognize that police officers in order to capture a criminal, may end up, you know, inadvertently killing some innocent person. It's a... It's just accepted. It has to be done. You know, to stop a fire, sometimes you have to use fire. If there's a forest fire, sometimes the only way to stop the forest fire is you make a fire break. You, you burn the trees and the grass that are on the path of the fire so that when the fire gets there, there's nothing left to burn. So you may be destroying innocent plants and trees in order to save the whole forest. This is the, the way of this world. It's a, it's a world of, of suffering where all endeavors are covered by fault, by some sort of smoke. But in any case, taking this concept that hurting the people you're supposed to protect is an unforgivable sin. Maharaj Yudhisthira is condemning himself to hell for millions and millions of years. And we should consider that this is truly the way in which each of us experiences karma. Srila Prabhupada often talks about how karma is a law 
and we are forcibly under the law of karma that you cannot commit sins and not suffer for them and of course that is a fact but our being under the law of karma is entirely and completely our own choice and it is in fact we as the jiva who feel I must suffer for this and I must suffer for it unlimitedly we can also point out that the opposite of forgiveness is wanting someone who hurt us to suffer unlimitedly one of the problems with vengeance towards others is that no amount of suffering of the other party generally appeases the victim just like here they can suffer unlimitedly now there's many accounts like this someone will commit murder and the relatives of the victim they want justice and vengeance and they see the murderer is is found guilty in the court the murderer goes to jail for life or the murderer is even executed and and then the reporters will ask the victim's family so now do you feel satisfied do you feel peaceful they'll say no and we see this practically when someone wrongs us you know to get a sense of closure to get a sense that they've rectified it can be very difficult especially if the wrong is very severe we may want them to just suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer forever we don't get to a point we say okay okay you know you've paid for your crimes and just as we'll do that to others who harm us or harm, harm people we love you know you see this even in ordinary relationships where you know the husband will do or say something 20 years ago and the wife is and he's apologized and he's rectified and the wife is still berating him over this and trying to punish him for this 20 years later where the husband with the wife or children with their parents oh oh you you did this to when when i was 6 years old you did this to me there's a story in chaitanya charitamrita like that of this muslim who became in, in charge of an area and his wife noticed that he had a scar on his back and she said what's that from and he said when i was the servant of the hindu subudi roy one time i did something wrong and so he hit me and i got this scar and she said oh you should kill him then and he said he said no 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 you know subudi roy was was a good master i liked working under him i have all love and respect for him just because one time he hit me uh, you know he shouldn't be killed for it she said well at least turn him into a muslim so this is the general mood you know somebody wronged me 20 30 years ago even if they've rectified it i still i want to see them destroyed i can never forgive them and you know we do this with ourselves too mars yudhisthira here is doing this with himself he's doing this with himself i mean we sometimes we might think it's some new agey thing to say to forgive yourself but it is not in this story we can see that bijma is going to convince maras yudhisthira you've got to forgive yourself by not forgiving himself he couldn't go on with his duty and it is actually our not forgiving ourselves that ties us into this law of karma this concept that we are indebted and prophet also speaks about this point when lecturing on these verses materially we are indebted it's a fact the king is indebted to take care of the citizens it's true 
As soon as you're born, Prabhupada says, you're indebted to your parents. You're indebted to the, the sages who give the Shastra you study. You're indebted to the demigods. Prabhupada talks about how it's like we're getting the, the sunshine. Right now the sun is pouring in the windows of the room I'm sitting in. And he said, just like the electricity, you know, we have an electric light, you have to pay the bill. He said, also the electricity, you have to, the sunshine, just like the electricity, you have to pay for it. And if you don't pay for it, then you're in debt. You have to pay your debts. This concept that one, that we are all indebted and that we have to pay our debts is a true concept. It's real, it's valid, it's moral, it's ethical. The person who, who takes and doesn't repay their debt is condemned in the Mahabharata, the ungrateful person. There's so many stories in the Mahabharata, the ungrateful person. Someone who gets something and doesn't give anything in return. In fact, gratefulness is one of the items of knowledge explained in the previous chapters by the earth, by Bhumi. One has to be grateful. It's one of Krishna's qualities, that he's grateful. He's so grateful that if you say his name, you just say his name one time, even in jest, even in derision. Oh, those Hare Krishnas. Krishna is grateful, eternally grateful. Sudama Maharaj, that's not Sudama Maharaj, Sudama Brahmana, I was just listening to this story. He says that the, the jivas are never grateful enough for the gifts of the Lord. They always think the gifts of the Lord are less than what they desire. They get the gifts of the Lord and they say, okay, you give me all this, but what about this? What about this? What about this? He said, but the Lord is very grateful for even a little, little, little thing given by the devotee. And in exchange for a, a grains of chipped rice, he gives opulence like the king of heaven. So it is a fact that one should be grateful, and it is a fact that one should pay one's debts, but it is only a fact if one is materially conditioned, that one has to pay one's material debts. And the comparison that I always give is to a, a game called Monopoly, which I hope most of you are familiar with. So many years ago in our Gurukula, we had some students who boarded at our house, and sometimes in the evenings, they would like to play games. And sometimes they would play this game, Monopoly. So Monopoly is a game where you buy and sell properties and keep money in a bank. And you try to get the most amount of money. And of course, it's all just paper money. It's a game. But I would notice that when the, the boys would play this, it was all boys, when they were playing this Monopoly game, they would get very angry. And they would get into real fights. It wasn't just sportsmanlike fights, but they would get into actual fights and become very angry with each other over this game. So the whole material world is just like a monopoly game. It's a dream. If you borrow money from someone in a dream or somebody borrows money from you in a dream, what is the meaning? If you lend someone money in a monopoly game or you borrow money from someone in a monopoly game, what is the meaning? There's no meaning. It's a game. It's fake money. It's plain money. Now, that doesn't mean that you can play the game and cheat, but it means that you can quit the game. Ordinary religionists and ordinary moralists stay, stay in the game and play by the rules. Well, that's a lot better than staying in the game and trying to cheat. Staying in the game and trying to cheat is the mode of ignorance. Staying in the game and playing by the rules is the mode of passion or sometimes a mode of goodness. 
depending on your motive for being in the game. But generally, the mode of goodness and transcendence is you quit the game. You don't play the game. Sarva dharman parichaja mame kam sharanam vraja aham tvam sarva papebhyo moksha yishyami masuchaha. Yasindra gopa matavendra mahosva karma bandhani rupa palabhaja namatanoti karma dinirdhati kintu chabhakti bhajam govindamani purusham tamaham vrajam. When you quit the game, guess what? You don't have to play your debts any. You don't have to pay your debts anymore in the game. And you're allowed to quit the game in the middle. And the only way to quit this game is in the middle because there's no end to this game. This game is like a banyan tree. A couple days ago, I, I had two appointments in town and I had about an hour's break between the appointments. So in that break, I went to a local park that has a huge banyan tree and I was sitting under the banyan tree chanting japa and so naturally Krishna's verses in the 15th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita came to my mind how this world is like a banyan tree so complicated if it's a big enough banyan tree you can't even see what is the original trunk where does it begin where does it end Krishna says no one can see where it begins and where it ends in this world Krishna does not say, untangle the banyan tree and make it straight. You cannot untangle a banyan tree and make it straight. You can't do it. Trace out where all the roots and the branches come from and untwist them. and You can't. You can't make things right in this world. In the process of, of paying back So the devotee is advised to quit the game in the middle because there is no end to the game. You can say the universe is destroyed, but then it's created again. Bhutva, bhutva, praliyate. There is no end. This material nature is eternal. And if we consider that other people have to pay us back and we have to pay other people back, we're the ones condemning ourselves to suffering. It's Mars Yudhisthira here who's condemning himself to unlimited suffering. He's the one who's saying, oh, I, I've incurred so many debts in this Monopoly game that I'll never be able to play them, pay them back even if I'm doing it for millions and millions. I have to play this game, he said. I have to stay in this Monopoly game and pay back my debts for millions and millions and millions of years. And it will, it will, the game will never be over, he says. As I say, even if we think we have a debt we can pay back, then we get a new one. And we go through our suffering, we get our disease, we get our legal troubles, we get our deformities, we get our difficult relationships, our weather disturbances, and in that way, we pay off our bad karma, and then we accrue, accrue, accrue new karma in that process. And we want other people to pay us back. Many, many, many years ago, my, I got a gift for my birthday of a few hundred dollars. And a good friend of mine 
wanted to borrow some money from me. I, I didn't actually want to lend them the money, but they insisted it was very important. I'll pay you right back. And they didn't pay me back. And at first I was very angry. You know, you've got to pay me this money back. And then I thought, do I want to damage my relationship for the sake of money? What's, what's more important, relationships or money? Oh, I forgive the debt. So in order to quit the monopoly game of you owe me, I owe you, we are condemning ourselves to suffer and enjoy in this world. We're condemning ourselves. You can say the laws of nature force us, but they only force us because we want to play the game. The rules of the game only constrain the people who are playing the game. The rules of the game don't constrain people who quit the game. Once you quit the game, you don't have to follow the rules of the game anymore, do you? And again, the game never ends. You can't say, I'm going to wait till the game ends. Like Prahlad Maharaj said to his schoolmates, you'll think, okay, okay, I can't do it now. I can't quit the game now because I'm a child. He said, then you'll become, you know, a youth. And you won't be able to do it then. And then this will happen. And you'll always say, later, 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 later. First, I have to finish my business. First, I have to finish this business. Then I can quit the game. Then I can surrender to Krishna. First, I have to pay my karmic debts, and I have to collect my karmic debts. Then I can surrender to Krishna. But there'll never be a time when all the debts are paid off, when everyone's paid us, and we've paid everyone, and it's finished. It doesn't happen. It goes on and on and on. And even here, we may be the ones condemning ourselves to going on and on and on. We may be the ones saying, I've committed an unforgivable sin for which I have to suffer eternally. Or someone has committed an unforgivable sin against me for which they have to suffer eternally. Or it can even be, I've done so much piety that I need to enjoy in the world eternally. That can also be there. I want to collect all my enjoyment. I want to collect all of the, you know, the the penance that's due me, I want to collect all the enjoyment that's due me. This is what happens when people die. You know, what about the unfinished stuff? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't publish my book, I'm only on page 350. You know, my daughter never apologized to me for the time she offended me 35 years ago. I've never apologized to my mother. I've never, you know, I didn't pay my tax bill. I didn't do this, I didn't do that. What about that? People have this illusion they're going to die at peace. That they're going to settle all of their affairs and die. You can't. There's always unfinished business. One has to quit the game in the middle. When is the time? The time is now. That if we surrender to Krishna, there's no more debt. You don't owe me, I don't owe you, nobody owes anybody. I don't need to get a penance for your offense against me. You don't need to give pay me an enjoyment for all my sacrifices. I don't need to undergo unlimited penance for all the ways I've offended you. I don't need to give you pleasure for all your sacrifices. I'm out of the game. Sarva dharman pricha jama mekam sharanam vraja aham tvam sarva papebhyo moksha yishyami masucha. You're moksha. You just is using the word here, moksha. He said, I, there'll never be any moksha, he says. I'll never be free from my debt. 
I'll have to pay it eternally. No, Krishna says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. I mean, after all, the people who, we, who we've hurt that we owe them in penance, the people who sacrifice for us, for whom we owe enjoyment, they're going to get that anyway, whether we give it to them or not. The people who owe us enjoyment because we've sacrificed for them, the people who owe us rectification because they've offended us, we're going to get everything that we need and everything that's fine for us, whether they give it to us or not. Under Krishna's protection, Krishna is our maintainer. We're not the maintainer. We're not the protector. Now, you can't quit the game and become sinful. That's not quitting the game. That's staying in the game and cheating. You can't stay in the game and cheat. That's the mode of ignorance. What does it mean to quit the game? It doesn't mean you become irresponsible. It doesn't mean you become sinful. That's tamagun. That's staying in the game and cheating. Quitting the game means you work for Krishna. Yat karoshi yat agnasi yat tahosi dasi yat yat tapasasi kanti yat tat pranam. Again, this word mukti. I do my sacrifices for Krishna. If I sacrifice for someone, it's not because they now owe me some pleasure in return. Then I'm in the game. I sacrifice for someone to please Krishna. And if I do something on the order of Krishna, that, like this battle, that ends up harming someone, I don't owe them anything. Krishna owes them something, if anyone owes them something, but I don't. It was on Krishna's order. It wasn't independent. And the same way, if somebody offends me, they don't owe me an apology. They don't owe me some rectification. I accept Krishna is allowing this person to offend me due to my own past misdeeds, due to my own lessons. It's Krishna working through this person. They're just the instrument. Let me hear what Krishna has to say. I don't have to collect from others. Others don't have to collect from me, and I don't have to collect from others. Of course, the devotee generally lives in the world as if they're playing the game. It looks like that to others. From an external point of view, it looks like, oh, this devotee, when they do something wrong, they rectify it. If somebody does sacrifices for them, they give that person some enjoyment and some gratitude. It looks like that. But the evidence that it's not like that is that they're not demanding that for themselves. Amani namanadeya kirtaniya sadahari. That's how you can tell the difference between the, what is it, the night and day, with the night for the materialist is the day for the self-realized, the night for the self-realized is the day to the materialist. Even Jesus said, two people are working in the field, one is taken and one remains. They externally seem to be doing the same thing, but there is a difference. The difference is that the devotee, they're getting their nourishment from Krishna. They're not getting their nourishment and their needs from their relationships with other jivas and their relationship with the material energy separate from Krishna. 
So although if the devotee offends somebody else, they certainly try to rectify it. And the devotee certainly tries to give uh, the pleasure and respect and care to others who are under their care, like Mars Yudhisthira is talking about here. It is not for the purpose of getting something in return for those, from those others. It's for the purpose of making Krishna smile. And on that level, whether they're fighting a battle and killing their guru and killing boys, or whether they're protecting their guru and protecting boys, is irrelevant. Whatever pleases Krishna is what is nourishing the devotee. So it's a slight change in, in thinking that results in a huge change of experience. One then becomes free. We all want freedom. Prabhupada says the need of the soul is freedom. We want freedom. We don't want to be going around worrying, okay, this, this person said this, they have to apologize. This person owes me this. And we have to keep track of everybody who owes us pleasure and apology. And we have to keep track of everyone to whom I owe pleasure. Okay, let's see, this person is taking care of me. What do I have to do to be grateful? Okay, let's see, I need to do this and this and this to pay back my debt to them because they've been so nice to me. Or I need to do this and this and this to pay back to them because I've been so nasty to them. And let me calculate it. Let me keep score. And You know? <laughs> it's, it's like they have these books on relationship, how people keep score. They're, they're true. Those are the rules of the game. What are the rules of the game? You know, you can buy these books. How do, how do men and women keep score in their relationships? How do you keep score at your, at your work? You know, how do you keep score at, at, in your school, with your government? There's all these rule books. The devotee's not playing by the rule books. The devotee takes the rules book and said, you know, I'm playing by the pleasure of the boss. Just like Prabhupada also talks the connection with these verses, how Krishna takes care, so talking about this particularly in, response, in regard to Kunti's prayers, that Krishna takes care of everyone, but especially his devotees. So if you're in the intimate circle of the boss and the boss is the one who wrote the rule book, he tells you what to do. One nice example from Chaitanya Charitamrita is when uh, Sri Chaitanya uh, Mahaprabhu was criticized, I think it was by Venkat Bhatta, for chanting the names of God. He said, you're not a very good devotee because you're chanting the names of God. Oh, how is that, sir? Oh, because our relationship with the Lord is like that of a wife to her husband. And the wife should never call the husband by name. Of course, in modern society, wives call their husbands by name. Hey, Fred. Hey, Sam. Whatever. But in a Vedic society, the woman called her husband by some title of respect. Not or Swami or Prabhu or something like that. Actually, the husband also called his wife by a title of respect. He'd call her Devi, Prabhupada said. You know, we had uh, in the former verses, Priya was used. Your Priya, your, your dear one. So he said that you're like the wife of God. You're not supposed to be calling him by name. You're supposed to be calling him with a title. And, and we see this is done in some of the modern religions of the world. Just like in modern Judaism, they don't even say the word uh, God, basically. If they write the word God, they write G-D. They don't, won't write out the word God. They said it's too sacred. You can't say it. And the very religious Jews... When they talk about God, they say Hashem. Shem means name. Ham means the. They just say the name. They'd say, oh, thank the name that we've gotten some money in the bank. 
you know, dedicate everything to the name. Just Hashem, Hashem, Hashem. But there's no name. There's no name. Or if they have a name, it's like Adonai, which, or Elohim, which means just God or, or Lord. There's no name. There's evidence that in the Bible there was a name, but at some point the elders forbade anyone to pronounce it. And because Hebrew is written without vowels, if nobody pronounces it after a while, the proper pronunciation is lost. So Menkat Bhatta said, you should be referring to God like that very formally. You shouldn't be using a name. And Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, you don't understand. He said, the main duty of the wife is to obey the orders of the husband. If the husband orders, say my name, then you have to follow that order. You cannot go to the husband and say, my dear husband, it says in the Vedas that I'm not supposed to call you by name. Therefore, I cannot obey your order. <laughs> that won't be very pleasing. It's like I, I always think of this story, how Prabhupada went to one devotee and said, you're eating too much. You should reduce. And the devotee said to Prabhupada, but Prabhupada, when I joined the movement, you told me to eat a lot. And Prabhupada looked at him and said, did you believe me then? And he said, so believe me now. So we're aiming not for just some following of rules as a way to please Krishna. Certainly, we please Krishna by following the rules. Undoubtedly, the rules are there by Krishna, even the rules of the Monopoly game. They're Krishna's rules. But what we're aiming for is to please Krishna. And when we aim to please Krishna, rather than aiming to follow the rules for our own sense gratification, then we have quit the game. We say, Krishna, I'm no longer going to follow the rules of this game so that I can collect, so that I can try to win this game. Well, they you used to have that bumper sticker, the one who dies with the most toys wins. I'm not going to play the rules of Monopoly so I can win the game of Monopoly because I have figured out that no one ever wins the game of Monopoly because the game never ends. So I'm going to stop trying to win this game. I'm, I'm not even going to play the game anymore. I don't care if I amass a huge pile of play money or somebody owes me a huge pile of pay money. I don't have any interest in it. If you, dear Lord, want me to externally stay in the world and externally play the Monopoly game, fine. And if you ask me not to follow the rules of Monopoly, that's fine too. Whatever will please you, Lord, that's what I will do. And whatever the result of my playing is, is, is no consequence to me because I've lost my interest in the play money. I may go by the rules superficially, but I have no emotion in it. I have no attachment to it. My attachment is just to please Krishna. And the evidence of this is what is our emotional response when others break the rule in relation to us or we break the rule in relation to others. Here, Yaraj Yudhisthira has broken the rules in relationship to others and he's overwhelmed with lamentation and self-condemnation. So that is evidence that one is playing the game for oneself rather than quitting the game and simply working as a devotee of Krishna. So Krishna's advice to everyone now is quit the game. Stop playing this game to try to get more play money than anyone else and thinking the game will somehow end and you will have what you want. Quit this nonsense. Just try to satisfy Krishna. And Krishna will then give directions 
how to externally superficially appear to others as if we are still in the game, but how to be in the real game. The real games, where we're running with Krishna on the bank of the Jamuna, throwing bell fruit, where we're joking with Krishna about, you know, who stole the flute. That, that's the real games. That's the, we want to be an actual Lila. We want to be in the reality. We don't want to be in the illusion. Questions, comments? So that's how you quit the game. The, your method for quitting the game. I like your realization. The game's rigged. The dice is loaded. Yeah, it's loaded. You're never going to win. It's not possible. One reason you can't win is that it never ends. There's never a finish line where you say, okay, who's the winner? Yeah. The other reason you can't win is as soon as you get ahead in one area, you get behind in another. In the process of, of you doing one thing, you complicate it with something else. So the, the process of quitting is actually very, very easy. Whatever I'm doing, I'm doing for Krishna, I'm doing for Vishnu. I'm cooking, you know, so you go to cook a meal. Why do we cook a meal? Well, we cook a meal so we can eat. But generally when people are just cooking for themselves, they cook very simple meals. It's, it's quite interesting. But if you're cooking for other people, why, why are you cooking for other people? You're cooking so they'll be pleased with you. So they'll say, wow, that was delicious. I really like that meal. Whenever someone else is cooking for you, they always want you to take seconds and thirds to show how much you liked it. We're cooking for other people because we want to satisfy them. So why do we want to satisfy them? Do we want to satisfy them so we'll get some appreciation in return and some respect in return? Are we trying to satisfy them so Krishna will be pleased? Simple. Because if Krishna's pleased, whether they give us anything in return is irrelevant. And I give the example all the time of a business. So let's say you're a customer care representative in a business. The customers come to you with their problems. So you're supposed to make the customers happy. Why? So the boss will be happy. The customers do not pay your salary. I mean, perhaps indirectly, but they don't pay your salary. Even if a particular customer hates you, if you've done your job properly and you have a good boss, you're still going to get paid. So you're endeavoring to make the customer happy, so Krishna will be pleased. And however the customer treats you, whether the customer is happy or unhappy, is actually irrelevant to you. What's relevant is your effort to make the customer happy according to the rules given by the boss. That's relevant. But whether or not the customer is happy is irrelevant. You can't control that. I mean, recently on the Shastric Advisory Council, we were asked to write a paper by the GBC. And one GBC member responded and said, uh, the answer to this particular question, the, this question was not answered satisfactorily. And our response was, we can't satisfy everybody. We never promised that our answers were going to satisfy everybody. So this is the difference. One, one has absolutely no attachment. One is not attached to the results. And if Krishna says, okay, you know, put down the dice, walk away, we say, okay. We don't say, oh, but, 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 but I've got to finish this. 
and I got to finish that. And what about this? And what about that? And what about that? If Krishna says, pick up the dice and play on my behalf, you say, okay. Put down the dice and walk away. Okay. And when we're there rolling the dice, we're like, this is not going to work out for my satisfaction. It's not. That's already given. No way is it going to work out for my satisfaction. I'm doing this because my boss has some business here. I'm not trying to get satisfaction here. You know, when some ambassador of a government goes to work out a dispute between two opposing parties, whether they actually work out the dispute is irrelevant. What's relevant is they did their duty. They, they went and they did everything. You know, how was it done? Did I properly transmit the, the message of my government? Did I do my best? But whether what the result is is irrelevant. That's the business of the country. So we can tell we're still in the game by when we become very agitated when people owe us something, when they offend us. And we get very agitated when we offend someone else. We get very agitated when we are to blame, when we are responsible. Oh my God, I'm responsible. Oh no, what am I going to do? I'll never be able to take care of this. Millions and millions and millions of years of suffering. That's what Maharaj Yudhisthira is doing. He's sowing, you know, I'm to blame. And he's freaking out. He's losing it. And I'm such a sinful, fallen person. I'm terrible. I'm terrible. Then you know you're playing the game. You know, and if one is detached, you're going to go right back again to 12th chapter. Bhagavad Gita, one who is equal poised, poised in fame and infamy, honor and dishonor, heat and cold, happiness and distress, friends and enemies. I do my duty for Krishna. I get my satisfaction from Krishna. Whatever the result is the result. If Krishna says, go and apologize to this person and try to rectify, we do that. If Krishna says, you spilled the milk, try to clean it up, we do that. But not because we feel obligated. So Krishna will smile. Krishna won't like it if we spill milk and walk away. But if Krishna tells us, walk away, we will also walk away. Krishna says, now it's time to go. Then we say, okay, now it's time to go. There's so many things undone. There'll always be so many things undone. So this is how you walk away from the game. This is, the whole Bhagavad Gita is this. Arjuna, walk away from the game. You're not fighting this battle for your own glory and honor. You're not fighting this battle so you can rule the kingdom and enjoy the kingdom. You're fighting this battle for my service. Whether you win or lose, whether you kill your guru or your guru lives, has nothing to do with your happiness and distress. Your happiness and distress is in pleasing the Lord. So it's it's hard. It's hard because... We've been playing this game for our own sense gratification and our own results for billions and billions of years, so we're habituated. And therefore we think it's easier if I quit the game by physically, literally walking away. I think all of us have thought this way sometimes. You know, it's, it's too hard to work in this world as Krishna's servant and to work in this world detached. Better to just walk away, you know, just renounce my family, quit my job go to a Himalayan cave and, and then I can actually walk away from the game and I'll just sit down and, and, and chant all day. Why is Krishna asking me to, to externally stay in this game which I've played for my own sense gratification and just change my consciousness about it? That's so difficult. So why is he asking us to do that? Well, the first reason is 
that even though we say we want to walk away from the game, we don't really mean it at first. We generally have to change our consciousness gradually. And if we went to some Himalayan game, we'd say, I missed my game. <laughs> and we'd want to jump back into it. We see this all the time. People who take sannyas and then get married when they're 60, you know. So, so that's one reason. And another reason is that Krishna has some business here. He has some business he wants us to do. And the only way to do that business is to superficially look to others as if we're playing their game. It's very hard to do Krishna's business here as some sort of externally madman avaduta, who, by others' estimation, is from others' perception, is totally out of the game. It can, it can be done. There have been preachers in history, but it's, it's rare. It's rare, just like Jed Bharat. You know, he was externally, superficially out of the game. And therefore, it was very difficult for him to have any effect on, on preaching and doing Krishna's mission in human society. So those are the two reasons why we don't externally walk away in, in, a, in a sense that would look like it to us materially, why we go through, to a large extent, the same behaviors that we would do if we were still playing the game and change our consciousness. Undoubtedly, that's difficult. But in the opinion of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Rupa Goswami, Bhaktivinoda Thakur, Bhakti Siddhanta, and Srila Prabhupada, it is far, far easier to continue to make the moves of a pious materialistic person in the game and change our consciousness about it than it is to throw the dice down and discuss and retire to a tree in Vrindavan. Is there anything else? I got pulled away for a second. Am I missing something? I'm just seeing if Can anyone else has me? another question. Here you find it just stopped yeah. just then. Yeah. Just now she went off. Uh, does anyone else there? have another question? Yeah. I'm not off. I'm still. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got pulled away. You're definitely silent. I'm sorry. Who is speaking? Yeah. I have a question. Is that Vidaga? Uh, Vidaga. Krishna Vidaga, Yes. Hare Krishna. Then early feet and similar board games. Do you think Monopoly and similar board games can be a situation for children? How do they competitive or frustrating situations? And to practice and develop the cat? especially uh, because of attention you get caught up in these games you know with the mind and it can be pointed out that in the end this game doesn't have any real meaning in somebody's life you know so you know that they might be able to develop an attitude by playing such a game well this uh, when I was writing by Quinted Children I, this was of course the pre-internet days, I sent letters to about maybe 15 very, very senior devotees in, the, in ISKCON, and I said, in regard to children's playing, please define what is an appropriate and inappropriate game, and please define Srila Prabhupada's use of the term frivolous sports. I got no replies 
absolutely zero replies. Nobody answered my question. And I have yet to find more than a handful of people who will even attempt to answer that question. I know of one leader in the ISKCON movement who says that if the game involves a ball, it is a frivolous game. And if it doesn't involve a ball, it is not a frivolous game. Um, I, I really don't know. I mean, when those kids were playing Monopoly, it just to defend myself, <laughs> it wasn't my idea. But in any case, it's very, very difficult to, uh, to figure out what is appropriate for children. It's even somewhat difficult to figure out what is appropriate recreation for adults. So one devotee's idea of appropriate recreation is another devotee's idea of absolute maya. And you would think that there'd be some things that we'd all agree on. Uh, I mean, we'd all agree that, of course, if you go to a gambling casino and have a poker game for money, that that's inappropriate recreation. Uh, I hope we would all agree that it's inappropriate recreation if people are physically hurting each other. But anyway, uh, this is not a question... This is just not a question that I've been able to answer. I have my own personal standards as to what is and is not appropriate uh, for children's playing and recreation, but I will tell you right now that there are many, many senior Vaishnavas whose definition of what is and is not an appropriate recreational game for children or even for adults varies radically from mine. And this is true even among the most senior sannyasis, and gurus and GBCs, they don't agree with each other on this topic. Uh, they certainly wouldn't agree with me. So I could give you my opinion, and no, I don't think Monopoly is a very good game for children, and I wasn't very happy that they were playing it. And when they were playing it and all they did was fight, because and they would get into real fights. I mean, it was they, they'd get very worked up emotionally about it. And I said, this is some good evidence that this is not a proper game for Vaishnav children. Uh, however, you know, I wasn't the only one making the decisions in that circumstance. It wasn't that I was the lone voice of authority. I don't think we played much after they, they you know, and mostly we, they didn't end up playing much because they just ended up fighting so much that they didn't even enjoy it so much. But anyway, this is, this is a very difficult topic. Um, I, I, I definitely cannot give my opinion on it as if my opinion were Sadhu Shastra Guru, because I just know that there's so, so many different opinions on this topic. I, I've not been able to find a clear consensus on what is what constitutes a frivolous sport and even what constitutes gambling when it comes to recreational play among children or even among adults, or even among adults. So... You know, it's. I'm not saying there is not a standard. I'm not saying there isn't a standard. I'm just saying I haven't found anyone that can establish a standard to which most others agree. That's what I'm saying. You know, perhaps if we had in the Gaudiya Vaishnava community some group of senior Brahmins, just like in the in Islam, they have people who can issue. I think they're called fatwas they can issue an edict on a question of morality. We, we don't really have those people. We don't really have, especially in the whole Gaudiya Vaishnav Sampradaya, we don't have some group of people who are respected by all of the different Sanghas that if they said, okay, 
kids can play Scrabble, but they can't play Monopoly, that everybody would agree. And even within one Sangha, we don't, we don't have that. Maybe if it's a very, very small Sangha, which is one authority, and that authority is presently on the planet. But even then, there's going to be some people in that Sangha who are going to do something else. But what the speaker, if you have a Sangha where the main leader is no longer physically on the planet, and people have all their own opinions. So it's, you know, I could give you my opinion, but I, my opinion would only be just my opinion. But I, I'm glad you clarified this because I don't want to give the impression by this class that I think Monopoly is a good game for children. I don't think it's a good game for anybody, but that's just my opinion. And if you want to quote it, you can quote it just as my opinion. <laughs> okay, I, I think I have to go. It's, it's quite late, and, and I have a, a lot of things on my plate today. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna. All glories to Srila Prabhupada.